Why don't we open our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark as we're at. If you guys are new here, uh, we've been taking the Gospel of Mark and going through it. So that's where we're going to be taking a look at tonight, Gospel of Mark chapter 8. And a uh, great little story that we'll be taking a look at. The Gospel of Mark is really a story. Uh, it's a series of stories written by uh, a guy by the name of Mark who is wanting to convince us why we should trust Jesus, why we should worship Jesus, why we should surrender our lives over to him. And uh, he does so in so many different ways by really trying to reiterate many different angles, the story of Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, that how Jesus and why Jesus is trustworthy to convince us of this. And what he w- really wants for us to understand is to have a proper understanding as to who Jesus is. Uh, we've been trying to say this all along, that if you have a false understanding of who Jesus is, then the problem is that we have this propensity to create our own cut and paste version of Jesus. The problem with that is that that Jesus can't rescue you. He can't help you because he doesn't exist. He's not real. He's a Jesus that you yourself have made. So Mark really wants for us to understand what he has to write so that we would believe him, so that we would trust in Jesus and therefore have a Savior that actually can rescue us, that actually can challenge us, that actually can contradict us. So the problem is that's one of the reasons why we turn to making our own Jesuses. Because we don't like to be contradicted. We definitely don't like to be challenged. So we turn, create our own little thing. But, like I said, Mark really wants for us to trust and believe in the Jesus that he knew. So that we would also be saved and have the life and the joy that he wants to bring along into our lives. So we're going to be reading a story tonight that has to do with Jesus healing the eyes of a blind guy. But then also kind of a monumental story in which Jesus pulls his disciples aside and basically asks them, who do you guys say that I am? And we'll be talking about why this is very significant. In fact, most scholars would see that this particular passage that we'll be reading tonight actually marks a transition in the Gospel of Mark, where there's basically divisions in the Gospel of Mark are viewed in kind of stages or scenes. Most scholars, depending upon who you look at or who you read, will define the Gospel of Mark as being either two phases or two stages or three or four, depending upon... But most would all agree that this marks one of the transitions, one of the phases, one of the stages, uh, the closing of one scene and the entrance into another scene. So what I want to do is I'm going to basically read the passage. And most scholars would believe and argue that uh, this this story that we're going to be taking a look at here tonight actually can be looked at in two different ways. And I want to try to be as faithful to the text as I can to just let it speak to us. And the two different ways in which you can look at it are basically the plain way. In other words, when you read your Bible, what it says is the most plain sense, most logical sense. You should just simply take it as that. However, also most scholars believe that the story contains various layers or parallels in the story. In other words, how Jesus healed this particular guy is unique. And I'll tell you why in a second. And how, and within the time frame, in the timeline of Jesus' ministry, why Jesus healed this guy in this particular time frame, in this particular timeline, in the way in which Jesus healed this guy, and the reason why Mark pulls this story of Jesus' healing into the storyline is really significant and really important. The bottom line is this, that Jesus healed a lot of people. There's a lot of miracles Jesus did that most of them didn't actually get written about in the Bible. So, you know, when you read the Bible, especially the Gospel accounts, you're not reading everything there is to read about Jesus' life. You're not reading an exhaustive account on Jesus' life. You're reading little snippets, little snapshots, little vignettes of Jesus' life. The ones that obviously the authors uh, of the Bible basically thought, we think, you know, we can convince you on this one. Or here's a great story that we want to convince you here as to how Jesus did this or why Jesus did this. So what we'll be reading tonight is and are these two different stories. So again, like I said, I want to look at this into two different types of interpretations, two different ways. First, the plain interpretation. The second interpretation we'll take a look at is more of a parallel interpretation. And I'll explain a little bit more about what I mean about that in a second. So what I'm going to do first, now that I told you where I'm going with tonight, I'm going to pray. And then we'll just jump in and we'll read the story. And as I read it, I'll kind of pause and maybe make some comments and we'll be really trying to understand and look into sort of the plain sense of the, of the, of the Bible story that we're going to be reading. And then what we'll do is we'll kind of come back around and we'll, and we'll take a look at sort of the parallel as to what the story is about. So hopefully that might make some sense to you guys. So let's pray and let's jump in. God, we just ask you right now that you would help just to 
calm our hearts, calm our minds, God, bring our hearts into a place whereby we can hear you speak, and God, whereby we can just respond to you, trust you. God, no matter what type of circumstances or situations that some of us might be going through in this life, God, we pray that right now that you would help us to at least in the time frame that we have here to pause them a little bit to some degree that would allow our hearts just to be open, to allow you to speak to us. We want to be changed. We want our hearts and our lives to be different. God, we want to trust in you and we want to look to you. We want to at least identify areas in our lives in which maybe we've created our own false Jesuses that are incapable and unable to rescue us so that we would then in turn trust you. So help us, we pray. We commit this evening in your hands and we pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to pick up tonight around verse 22. I'll start reading. It says this. And they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him and then he took the blind man and by the hand and he led him out of the village and he then had spit into his eyes and then he laid hands on him and then he asked him do you see anything and he looked up and he said i see men but then but they look like trees that are walking and then jesus laid hands on his eyes again and he opened up his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly and he sent him to his home saying do not enter into a village. All right, so the first story that we see here is obviously, again, very just obvious situation that's gone on. This is, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's not uncommon for Mark to tell little stories like this and tell stories about when Jesus is traveling to meet different people that are going through tough circumstances in their life in which Jesus is going to heal them. But what makes this story a little bit unique are a handful of things. First of all, I want to kind of jump in and kind of give you the location. Take a look at the next slide. Uh, I want to give you a little map as to, to identify a little bit of the region. This is kind of a, a topographical map over the region of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, you see the lower center right there? It's called the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's a fairly large lake. Now, again, try, try to put it into some sort of scale of perspective for you. Uh, from the top of the lake to the bottom of the lake, um, it's probably around 27 to 30 miles. So just kind of give you a little bit of an idea. It's like from here to Santa Maria. It's a pretty good distance. So imagine a lake that starts here in San Luis, that goes all the way down to Santa Maria. It's a pretty, fairly large lake. And so, just kind of want you to see that. Uh, there were all these little uh, coastal regions around there, these little cities, little villages. Uh, you see Capernaum, you see Gennesaret, Magdala, some of these other areas. Uh, Capernaum was a place that Jesus did a lot of ministry at. Well, the place that we're going to read about tonight is this area called Bethsaida. And uh, as you can kind of see right there, it kind of lays in this little basin right there. A lot of scholars believe that probably during the time of Jesus, the water level is a little bit higher. And so perhaps Bethsaida may have been a little bit closer to the water line than it was perhaps even in this map. And I have no idea when this map was uh, planned to be done or whatnot or whatever time of time frame of year or whatever it was kind of viewed as. But the point of the matter is that uh, this is the area that Jesus is entering into right now. He's with his disciples. In a little bit, we're going to see Jesus travel from the region of Bethsaida Go up to the region of Caesarea Philippi. I'll explain a little bit more about Caesarea Philippi in a, in a second. But I just want you to kind of see this picture in your mind as to where Jesus is at, what he's doing, where he's about to go. So you can imagine the, the, the distance from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi. It's a fair distance. Um, obviously almost twice, maybe three times as far as, as the distance of, around the Lake of, sea, uh, of Galilee. Um, and the reality is Jesus did majority of his uh, expeditions on foot. So that's a pretty good distance. What, 90 miles? Gosh, how far away is that? I don't know, here to Santa Barbara, is that right? I don't know, imagine walking to Santa Barbara. It's a pretty lengthy walk, all right? That's what Jesus did. He walked everywhere. Now, these little road trips provided a lot of opportunity for Jesus to get to know his disciples and for them to get to know him, all right? Have you ever been on a road trip, like a distance of maybe three hours? You get to know people pretty well. You talk about a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff comes out about your life just on those road trips, right? Interspersed with musics and pit stops at Starbucks, right? But the reality is you get to know someone a lot. And this is what would have been like to follow Jesus. You would have traveled with him. You would have talked a lot. I mean, obviously, it's a lot slower because you're on foot. So you're sleeping overnight. You're finding little places to eat. You're having a lot of talk and conversation going on. That's no doubt what would have been happening with Jesus. So in the city or in the village or in the area of Bethsaida, Jesus is here. And he's confronted by this guy who's, we're told, blind. 
Actually, he has some friends of his that bring this guy to Jesus, and they ask Jesus, would you heal our friend? And what Jesus does is, is really unique, because kind of on a cursory reading of this particular story, uh, it, it would almost seem as if Jesus' miracle didn't work, right? I mean, it's actually, what's, what's unique about this miracle, it's the only time in any one of Jesus' miracles from start to finish that ever it required like a two-step phase. I mean, the majority of the time, whenever Jesus did a miracle, uh, he says something, does something, and immediately it's done instantaneously and thoroughly. This miracle doesn't seem to be done thoroughly, which the point that I would make is this, is that if the writers of the New Testament were trying to fabricate a story, I mean, in other words, if these guys were just trying to throw down a nice myth, trying to convince a bunch of people to start a new religion, to make some money, to buy another jet, and to add another house along the seacoast of Florida, then these guys did a really bad job. Because what they're doing is they're basically saying, hey, the God that we want you to worship is a God that doesn't really do miracles very effectively. It doesn't make any sense. So the point that I would make is this, is that there must be a reason as to why Jesus healed this guy in two steps, in two phases. And it can't be that Jesus failed the first time. Because again, if Jesus failed, and you have disciples that record something like that, nobody who's writing a story that's trying to be believable would actually say or paint a picture of their leader as somebody who has to do things several times. Like you'd want to paint a picture that the guy that you're broadcasting is the main guy we want you to follow and worship, that this guy has thunderbolts coming out of his eyes. Like, you want to paint a picture that this guy is supernatural. But the disciples are simply telling a story as they saw it. Which is, my point is this. You can trust the Bible. You can totally trust the Bible. It's written by eyewitness accounts. These are people that saw what was going on. They're just simply recording events as they saw them happen. So that's what takes place. Another thing that's kind of unique about this story is the way that Jesus healed this guy. So Jesus touches this guy. That's amazing. Tell you why in a second. I mean, Jesus, we've already seen in the story of Jesus' life that he can do anything he wants, any way that he wants. I mean, this is a guy that speaks to a hurricane and the hurricane stops. This is a guy that does all sorts of miracles. He can actually heal remotely. All right, he's got a guy by the name of uh, Jairus. He approaches him, and Jairus has somebody that he's that's not with him, but he's asking Jesus, Can you heal? Uh, can you heal for me? And and basically Jesus is like, Yes. Go your way. They're healed. So Jesus heals remotely. So, I mean, Jesus can literally snap his fingers, do a jig, do a backflip, and heal somebody. All right? But he chooses to heal different ways in every time. And I think the point of this is to just say he's not restricted. He's not bound. He can heal. He can do anything he wants, any way he wants, however he wants, because he's God. There's, there's literally no cap, no limit to who Jesus is and what he's capable or what he's able to do. That's what I think the unfolding drama is revealing to us about who Jesus is. He's virtually unlimited in terms of how he does things. So in this particular setting, we see Jesus actually heal this guy by spit. He spits in his eyes. Uh, But what's really significant in the story is Jesus, like I said earlier, he touched him. What's amazing about this is that first century, at least within first century Judaism, they kind of had a unique view so that if you had some sort of ailment or malady in your life or crippling disease or some, something that actually kind of rendered you unclean, maybe you had a flow of blood or maybe um, some sort of disease that just sort of affected you, affected your ability to work, most Jews kind of would view you as somebody that is perhaps under the judgment of God. So in other words... Uh, kind of similar to how Job's friends would have treated Job. In other words, because you have these problems going on in your life, we're going to avoid you. We don't want to get too close to you because, I mean, the bottom line is is that you don't want to stand too close where lightning strikes. And so if God is upset with you and he struck you with, you know, boils or he struck you with blindness or he struck you with, you know, married to a woman that can't, bear children or something like that, or there's something wrong or something problematic in your life, you don't go out and go hang out with these types of people. You avoid them. But what's amazing that Jesus does here in this setting is Jesus, again, could have just simply said, okay, keep your distance. You're unclean. 
Uh, I'm going to snap my fingers, and on the count of three, open your eyes, and you're going to see clearly. He could have done that, but he doesn't. Jesus takes this guy, and he actually touches him. And I think the message, perhaps, that Jesus is trying to convey very clearly is that he's a God that is not at all, in any way, shape, or form, put off by our sinfulness, by our uncleanness, by our disease, by our crippling illnesses. He's not put off by us. He's a God that draws near to us. This is absolutely amazing. I mean, there's something about superstars that we look at that we're in awe of, right? And we can look at somebody who's like a professional athlete, and we stand in awe of them. We're like, oh my gosh, that's guy's a pro surfer. He's won like 11 world titles, or that guy is, you know, a movie star, or that girl's a professional singer. We stand in awe of these people sometimes. But the people that don't stand in awe of them are the ones that work with them. Because the people that work with them would tell you an entirely different story. They'd be like, they're absolutely impossible to live with. They're always insecure. They're always watching their back. They're very rude to everybody. They don't treat anybody with dignity, value, or respect. They treat everybody like a piece of dirt. But the reason why I stay working for them because I get, get paid a lot of money. So the payoff is worth it. But these people that everybody idolizes and worships because they're very strong as an athlete or they're very good as a fighter or they're very talented as a musician, they're jerks. But here we got a picture of Jesus, who's King of Kings, Lord of Lords, all power in his back pocket, and he comes down and he actually touches people. This is amazing to me. He's not a God that's put off. He's not standoffish. He's not arrogant. He's not prideful. He doesn't have this entourage that creates sort of this, this buffer zone of untouchability between him and Jesus. Jesus is always just sort of pushing through the crowds, going to the people with the greatest needs, and he's touching them. I want you to know this. I want you to believe this and feel this and understand how beautiful this is. This is the God that we serve. This is a God that we have, that we worship, that's opened our eyes, that's allowed us to see him. He's a God that actually draws near to us and touches us where we hurt, where we are broken, where we are messed up. He's not ashamed of you. He's not afraid of you. He's not put off by you, but he comes to you. I want you to feel the weight of that because all of us have areas in our lives that we know are broken. All of us have areas in our lives that perhaps maybe nobody else even knows. We know, we're aware of, we feel it. We feel the insecurity as a result of it. We don't like to speak about it. We don't like to talk about it. We're ashamed of it. But we have a God that not only knows about what those areas are, but is a God that draws near. He's not ashamed to touch us. So Jesus touches this guy, opens his eyes. It's a two-faced process. He sees. The reason why, and I'm going to get to this in a second here, why I believe uh, Jesus perhaps healed him in two steps, two phases, again, was because he had a purpose for this. There was something in which he was trying to communicate, and I'll come back to that in a second here. So, as we go on in the story, we see in about verse 27, so then Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And, when, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? So again, remember this 90-mile walk, they're talking, they got a lot of time on their hands, uh, Jesus asked him, hey, by the way, like, what's, what's, what are the press releases saying about me? Like, what are the bloggers talking about me? What's everybody, what's all the hype that's on the street about me? Some are like, ah, oh, some people actually think you're John the Baptist rose again from the dead. He's like, okay, more? And they're like, ah, oh, others think you're like a prophet, like Elijah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. He's like, okay, anything else? And they just keep having this dialogue. And then finally Jesus pauses and stops and turns to them, and then he asks them this question. And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say the prophets, in verse 29. And then he asks them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and he says, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged him to tell no one about him. We're going to come back to this in a second here, but Peter answers correctly. And this is really what Jesus was trying to get them to confess, to state, to state, to say, to say it out loud. Uh, Jesus takes his disciples to this area called Caesarea Philippi. So take a look at the next slide. I'll show you some pictures of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, first century, uh, would have been a city that no good Jews would have ever gone to. Straight up. It, it, was, it wasn't just Gentile. It was a pagan city. All right. 
Um, the top picture is sort of a, an artist rendition of what the city would have looked like. All those little art, artifices uh, are, are actually temples. They were pagan temples devoted to uh, these false gods. Or one, The main temple was, a, was a, devoted to a god by the name of Pan, which means everything. All right, so this was a, a, a worship site that all Jews would have avoided. In fact, this would have been kind of the place that, like, if Jesus' disciples, you know, when they wake up in the morning, Jesus, like, nudging them. He's like, come on, guys, we're going to keep going on the journey. And they're like, where are we going to go today, Jesus? He's like, we're going to go to Caesarea Philippi. They would have freaked out. They would have been like, but mom said don't go there. Like, that's off limits for us. And Jesus like, no, that's where we're going to go, Caesarea Philippi. They would have been shocked by this. This, this, this completely would have just, just been trouble for them. Because this would have been a total pagan spot that good Jews would just never adventure into. Now, first century, uh, this place would have been actually uh, recognized uh, for something else other than uh, the worship of the God of Pan. Because uh, there was a guy by the name of um, Herod Philip, all right? He was uh, one of the sons or one of the relatives of Herod the Great. And he was given this region north of the Sea of Galilee. And he created this city or kind of redesigned the city after himself. Uh, he named it Caesarea Philippi. The name Caesarea uh, is another way of saying Caesar. So this was a city that Herod Philip uh, redesigned, recreated, and basically gave back as a way of saying thank you to Caesar. Now, again, it wasn't like genuine thankfulness, like, oh, I'm so thankful. It's like it was a way of just basically trying to uh, create friends and influence people in very, very high places because you don't want to make Caesar mad because if you make Caesar mad, you don't just get taken off of the payroll, you lose your head. So Philip was working hard to try to earn the favor of Caesar. So he redesigned this city uh, in favor and redesigned the name around Caesar, hence the name Caesarea Philippi. Now, during that time, most scholars uh, will identify that this probably one of the, was one of the first areas that was to introduce what's called the Caesar worship. Um, what was beginning to develop in the first century... Uh, was kind of this, this greater notion that Caesars weren't just kings, but they're divine. And so this kind of began to escalate in the centuries following, but there were sort of traces of this, and this is one of the areas in which there was kind of this idea, this notion. So I want you to get this picture in your mind, that this was an area that was devoted to the, the honor, the honoring, the veneration, the worship of Caesar. And Caesar began to earn the title, uh, actually began to call himself the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. It's really unique. So in the New Testament, when you read people like Paul saying, no, Jesus, he's the King of Kings, and he's the Lord of Lords, not only is that a biblical statement, but that's a politically charged statement. It's basically saying, Jesus is Lord, Caesar's not. You don't say statements like that unless you're ready to die. Okay? Unless you're ready to face the consequences of Caesar. The crucifixion of Jesus is a very poignant evidence or example of what happens when you stand opposed to the powers that be. Does that make sense? So what we see here, Jesus brings his disciples literally into the backyard of Caesar, the place where Caesar's worshiped, the place where Caesar's venerated. And he asks the disciples, who do you guys say that I am? And in Caesar's own backyard, they're like, you're the Christ? You are the Christ. Jesus is like, yes, you got it. Okay, we've got to unpack this for you, because the word Christ is really important. We see it oftentimes, sometimes people think, oh, Christ, that's like Jesus' last name. Wrong. That's not. Uh, Christ basically is a title. The word Christ means um, Messiah, or the anointed one. Uh, the Hebrew rendering of that particular word is Mashiach. Basically, what the word Christ, or Messiah, or Mashiach, all mean is it's, it's a word that was synonymous or on the same par, same level as a king. So whenever you read Jesus Christ, you can also interpret that particular word. In fact, I've, I've, I can't remember what translation it was, but I saw a translation not too uh, recently, or, uh, recently that basically took every single time it described Jesus Christ, it also kind of put in parentheses Jesus the king. And I think, that's, I think it's totally fair to do that because that's the way that Jews would have understood it. So anytime they talked about the Christ, or when they're sitting here in this particular region, and Jesus asks them, who do you guys say that I am? And when they respond to Jesus and they say that we say that you're the Christ, what they're actually saying is that we believe that you're the true king. You're the true king that's come from God. 
that your authority, your reign, your government is the true government. Basically, it's a statement of saying we confess you as our Lord, not Caesar. We give and we render our worship, our veneration, our love, our affection to you. This is a very profound statement that these guys were making. It wasn't just like some religious statement of like, oh yeah, we'll sign the dotted line, we'll agree, whatever it is that you want us to believe, and we'll believe that, and we'll sort of turn it into some sort of a creed. But what they're really confessing in this particular intimate moment is that Jesus, we see and believe and trust that you are unique. You are a king that's come from God for a specific purpose, to push back the powers of this world, to overcome darkness, to establish your reign, your kingdom, which is going to be a good kingdom. That's what they all believed. Now, what Jesus is going to do in the end, he's going to basically tell them, okay, make sure that you don't tell anybody. It's kind of an interesting thing. Why would Jesus tell his disciples, okay, you guys answered correctly, I am the Messiah, I am the king, and then he says, but don't tell anybody. Well, a lot of scholars speculate why. We're never really told specifically why in the New Testament. But some of the reasons why, perhaps I think the best reason, one that I would probably agree with, is that um, to simply confess that there's another king in the backyard of the already existent king, and this king is aggressive, this king has already demonstrated how powerful he is. You don't want to cross the current king because when you cross the current powers that be, it actually means your death. And so for Jesus to recognize that he's basically launching a counter-cultural, a counter-kingdom movement that's going to challenge the powers that be in the highest level, basically is signing your own death warrant. It's equivalent to signing the Declaration of Independence. It's equivalent to that. The moment that you sign your name on the dotted line, you're basically saying, I'm willing to die for this cause because this is what we stand for. And I think that Jesus obviously knew this. There's no doubt about that. But I think perhaps he was staving off the consequences as long as it needed, as long as it took until the right time in which he had designed. All right? So that's, I think, probably the best answer. So that's, first and foremost, we'll just simply describe all of this, what we just looked at right now, as the plain version or plain idea of understanding this. Okay, I want to finish now and kind of wrap things up and take a look at basically the parallel version of this. What I want to describe this as is a parallel is a little bit different than a parable, all right? Parable is more of a story. It can be a real story. It can be a, just a made-up story. But the purpose of the parable is to tell some sort of a principle, kind of like an Aesop fable. It has some particular point to it, some particular moral of the story. Jesus told a lot of parables. This is not a parable. These are real events, real historical events that actually happen. But again, the way they happen, how Jesus conducted himself in the middle of these stories, I think is important. It's strategic. I think he had particular reason or purposes to do them, why he did them. And so, and the reason why Mark perhaps put this story here in the way Jesus perhaps would have done it, uh, most scholars would look at it and think that there's a, there's a parallel. There's something that's going on. The way the story is being told, the way the event happened, actually is pointing to something else. It might be pointing back to something. It might be pointing forward to something. And uh, if you like to read and you come across good authors, good authors know how to write like this. I think The Lord of the Rings is a perfect example of this. All right, Tolkien knows how to tell a story, a really good story. So there's a, there's a very obvious story that you can read or a very obvious point to the story you can read. It just makes sense. It's the plain sense of it. But the more you read it, the more you get into it, or if you watch the movie, the more layers you start to peel back, the more you start kind of seeing all these little nuances throughout the story, and you start realizing, like, oh my gosh, I didn't see that the first five times I watched the movie, and like, now I see it, now that makes sense, I didn't catch that earlier. What you're really discovering are different layers to the story, different parallels to the story. Well, I think Mark write, writes like that, okay? So the parallel basically is this, and I'll kind of point out to you guys a little chart, because then probably some of you woke up this morning thinking, I really want a chart for church tonight, so here you go. I'll try to point out to you some of these parallels. The uh, first story uh, basically tells the story of a blind man who receives his sight. The second story tells the story of blind disciples who receive their insight. And I get this idea because, again, remember this story sits in the context of the rest of chapter 8. Verse 18, Jesus basically turns to his disciples and he asks them this question. Are you blind? Are you blind too? What's your problem? Do you not get what I'm trying to tell you? So the implication is that these guys 
are still kind of in the process. They still don't see clearly, but they're on a path of learning. They're on a path of growing in insight and understanding. So, again, first story, blind man receives his sight. Second story, blind disciples receive their insight. Second, first story, Jesus takes the blind man away from the village. Second story, Jesus takes the disciples away from the lake and the crowds. Third, uh, first story, G- afterwards, Jesus insists on this guy that healed his blind on secrecy. Basically says, go, don't go back to the city. Don't tell anybody what's going on. Uh, the second story, we see Jesus afterwards insists that his disciples are to take a code of secrecy as well. Uh, first story, we see the blind man receives his sight in stages. The second story, we see the blind disciples receive their insight in stages as well. Growing process. So the point of the matter is a lot of people see this kind of as a parallel. And it's a parallel about spiritual blindness. Here's the point. We can read stories in the Bible about Jesus coming. In fact, people have identified this. That Jesus comes and had a mission. His mission was to come to raise the dead and to give sight to the blind. There's truth to that. But if you think of it only in the literal sense, that Jesus came literally to raise dead people from the dead and to give sight to all the blind people, I would say, on that criteria alone, Jesus didn't do a good job. Because there's a lot of other people that didn't get their sight healed in the region of Galilee or in the area of the first, in, in the world in the first century. Plus, I'm sure there's a lot more people that died than the three that were raised in the New Testament. Or handful you know Lazarus Jairus's child you know a handful of other people that were raised from the dead I'm sure there's a lot more people that were dead that Jesus raised so here's what I'm trying to say Jesus coming to raise the dead to give sight to the blind in terms of a mission that was not his main mission because Jesus knew that underneath physical death was a spiritual death In other words, the reason why there's physical death is because first and foremost, there's a root cause to that, which is spiritual death. Spiritual death is what is caused physical death. Spiritual blindness or physical blindness is a real malady. It's something that really happens. People sometimes can't see or people might be colorblind where they can only see certain ranges or tones of color. But the reality is it's something that really happens. But the Bible also uses Physical blindness is sort of a metaphor to identify that there are, are spiritual, that there's spiritual blindness as well, that people don't see things. There's certain variations, certain gradations that they don't see, they don't catch, they don't understand. Certain layers they just don't see, they don't know what's going on. And so Jesus comes, yes, it's true, to raise the dead, to heal the blind, to give sight back to the blind, but not less than on a physical level, but more than just simply physical. And so really what I want for us to focus on is this idea of spiritual blindness. That seems to be what the writer, Mark, wants us to really understand and focus. So I want to really ask three questions and try to answer them as best as I can. The first question I want to ask is how pervasive is spiritual blindness? Really, how pervasive is it? Try to answer. The second question we'll take a look at is what are the causes of spiritual blindness? Third question is how is spiritual blindness healed? So again, first, how pervasive is spiritual blindness? Two, what causes spiritual blindness? Thirdly, how is spiritual blindness healed? Those are the three things we're really trying to tackle and try to understand tonight. So the first thing is this, how pervasive is spiritual blindness? What we're going to begin to understand here is that in the rest of the context of the chapter, Jesus has been going around doing his ministry like he's typically been used to and accustomed to doing. In chapter 8, Jesus has contact with these religious leaders. The religious leaders come to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, can you do a sign for us? He's like, I'm not going to do a sign for you. I gave you myself. I showed you myself. I spoke to you about who I am, but you've chosen not to believe me. You've chosen not to trust me. Jesus is basically like, I'm not a magic man. I'm not here to just entertain you. I'm not here to just keep giving you signs. My purpose for coming is not signs and miracles and wonders. My purpose is to give you life. And if you don't want life, and you just want signs, miracles, and wonders for the sake of signs, miracles, and wonders, I'm not going to do your little dog and pony show. That's not what I'm here to do. Jesus basically says to them, you're blind. You don't see clearly. You don't see me. You don't know who I am. Then Jesus pulling away from that, around verse 18, turns to his disciples. You know, Peter, James, John, all these guys that have given up everything to follow Jesus. And then he turns to them and he asks them this question. Are you guys blind too? So I just want you to kind of get a, a picture of this. The religious leaders that are the deepest, most staunchly devoted people on the planet to God. I want you to feel this. In other words, the best that religion can offer 
I think it can be said safely that it's embodied in the scribes and Pharisees. Anybody as deeply religious as those guys? No. None of us are going to be that devoted. These guys were so devoted. But what Jesus, I think, is trying to say is that all the way from the most righteous, most religious leaders that you can find on the planet, all the way down to the disciples and everywhere in between. We're all blind. All of us are blind. How pervasive is spiritual blindness? It affects everyone. All of us are blind. And I'll prove it to you. Two ways, two analogies, two examples. First of which is sort of natural. Second of which is kind of more spiritual, more biblical. All right. First of which, get this idea. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was down at my parents' house. I grew up in Huntington Beach. I went down there, took some people down there. My dad, you know, whips out kind of like this little box of uh, photos, all right? I was kind of looking at some of the photos, and fortunately, some of the photos were for me in high school. And I looked at some of them, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm, I, I, I wore that. I actually wore that. That's, that's horrible. And look at my hair. My hair looks hideous. Like, like how could I be so blind? I don't get it. Like, I, I can't believe I look like that or dress like that or comb my hair that way. So my perspective, 25 or how many years ago that was, I can look back on myself 25 years ago and say, I was so blind. I didn't see clearly. The things that I did are just horrible. The point of the matter is this, is that the five-year-old self for me now in other words, five years in the future, if I can go there now, or ten years in the future, will look back on myself today. And I will look at who I am today and think, oh my gosh, I, I can't believe I wore that. I can't believe I dressed like that. I can't believe I comb my hair that way. So here's my point. We will look back five years from now, ten years from now, at our Instagram photos from 2012 and our Facebook timeline photos from 2012, and we will be in shock, looking at ourselves, thinking, I can't believe I did that. How could I have been so blind and look so foolish? The point that I'm making is this, is that let me just save you the energy of trying to think through this. That means right now, today, you're blind. You just don't see it yet. You'll need perspective, you'll need some years, and it'll all make sense. Because you look back and think, oh my gosh, look at that. All right, that, that's just sort of the, the natural example. Let me give you a spiritual example. How many of you have actually been Christians for a period of time that you look back at your life, maybe five years from now, or, you, or in, your, in your life right now, you look back five years from you know, today, back at your life maybe five years ago, and you think, you know what? I used to be so religiously you know, arrogant or whatever. I mean, you can look back at certain things that you did, certain things that you thought, certain things that you believed and think, how could, I, how could I have thought that? How could I have acted that way? How could I have believed that? How could I have been so blind? The fact of the matter is, is that five years from now, ten years from now, you're going to look up as to where you're at spiritually today and you're going to think the same thing as to who you are right now. Some of you keep journals. You write little journals. You write little snippets of your life. You keep them in there. And if you've ever read back on some of your journals, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you will look back over your past and think, how did I do that? How did I think that? How could I have done that? How could I have been in that relationship? That was a horrible relationship. That was a horrible place to be in. How could I have been so blind? The point that I'm making is this. You're blind right now. You just don't see it. You don't see it. None of us see it. Others may see it in us, but you don't see it in yourself right now. And so what the Bible is going to basically tell us is that all of us are blind. All of us have ideas. All of us have thoughts that basically we don't see clearly. So I think sort of an implication of this is this basically means this, is that if spiritual sight is a gift from God, and we have a tendency to look critically at other people, because here's how we typically do this. We look at other people that don't see things the way that we see them today, and we're like, how can they be so blind? How can they be so stupid, so foolish to not believe what I believe on this particular subject, or this matter, or this idea, or this political point, or this thought, or this whatever? You fill in the blank. And we look at other people with sort of this attitude, this arrogance, this condescendingness, if that's a word, condescending attitude towards other people. And the point of the Bible is this, is that if spiritual sight is a gift from God, you didn't earn it, you didn't get it, it was a gift from God to you. 
What right do you have to look at anybody else that's not there, that doesn't see it the way that you see it, to be condescending with them? You have no right. It's a gift from God. And you may not see it yet, but five years from now, you may look back and think, why was I such a jerk? How could I have been so blind? The bottom line is that we're all blind right now. All of us. We don't, any of us see clearly all the time, anything. So how pervasive is spiritual blindness? Well, it affects every single human being, all of us. Second question is, what causes spiritual blindness? And this is where we get a little bit more into the causal roots of this. Uh, something that Jesus says actually brings everything to sharp relief. And here's what he says. He says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? Verse 29, and he went on to ask them, um, you know, again, but who do you say that I am? So Jesus turns to his disciples, and he wants them to answer this question. They respond by saying, you're the Messiah. And, and by Jesus asking this question, actually throws everything in a very strong contrast. Everything becomes very clear as to where Jesus is going with this. And what he's really trying to do is he's, he's beginning to pinpoint the causes of our spiritual blindness. I want to read a quote to you. It's from a guy by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers. Um, he actually said this. I think it's really spot on. He says, Christianity says that the trouble with men and women is in their heart, in their ultimate value, power of vision and understanding. It's not that they are partially wrong. They're all wrong. They're looking in the wrong direction. They're blinded at the most vital point. The organ, organ that keeps them going is itself in trouble. What the human race needs is not just to be improved a little here and there. They need to be radically changed. If you believe this, what he's really trying to say is that we can't, by external, external efforts, tr really change anything about us. See, because here's typically what happens. We as human beings realize something's not right. We realize something's not right. We don't see clearly. We realize our life is going in a particular direction. Maybe you had a relationship that didn't go the way that you thought it was supposed to go. Or maybe you had a job and you lost a job. You weren't responsible the way you should have been. Maybe something happened in your life that kind of started you on this trek, on this path of thinking, I've got to get into some, a little bit more self-discovery. You know what I'll do? I'll go you know, download some DVDs or CDs to listen to or MP3s to listen to audiobooks, self-improve myself. Or I will try to maybe even become religious. Maybe I'll go to church a little bit more. Maybe I'll read my Bible a little bit more. Maybe I'll, I'll go find some sort of a mentor to tell me, to coach me, to guide me. All of those things are not necessarily bad. But here's the problem. We take all of those things and we make them ultimate things. And I would even say this. Things like reading the Bible, things like trying to go to church, things like trying to be religious. Unless we see things like reading the Bible, things like going to church, things like praying as being means to the end, and not the end. Means to the end. The means to the end that lead us to the main point that will help us and rescue us and save us. That's Jesus. If you view prayer, if you view Bible reading, if you view being religious as being the end that will somehow rescue you, then you will pour upon yourself a heavy burden that will crush you. Or depending upon who you are and your constitution, how you're made up, you might be someone that rises to that level and be like, I'm going to show them, I'm going to prove to them. You're that type A personality that just wants to fight and argue. And so you're like, I will do it, I will be religious, and I will prove to everybody that I can be different. Then you will look at everybody else with condemnation, and you will judge them, and you will be rude, and you will be very prideful and arrogant. The thing with both of these circumstances is you've never really changed the fundamental nature of your heart. You're still bound. You're still blind. You don't see clearly. You need to be rescued. So the problem that we need to understand it goes very deep. It's not just simply changing ourselves. It's not just simply changing our behavior. It's not just simply changing our habits. Um, I've said this before. It's kind of like the idea. What all of these external means are is they're just simply attempts to somehow put something upon our lives hoping that it will change the direction in the course of our lives. It's like taking a squishy ball. You know those little squishy balls? You squeeze them to make, you know, if you get angry or whatever, you're like, you squeeze that thing, it's supposed to like release tension. I don't know. But the point of the matter is you take that thing, you squeeze as tight as you can. As tight as you can. You hold it like that for a minute. Take your hands off of it, and that ball goes right back in the same original shape that it was. 
you didn't change the ball. You can't change the ball by externally squeezing it because the ball is squeezy ball, and that's going to go right back to what it does. That's what religion does to you. It doesn't change you. It doesn't make you a new person. It doesn't give you love in your heart. It doesn't cause you to overflow with joy and peace and hope and kindness to other people. It doesn't change you. It just mounts up more rules and regulations for you to follow. Again, like I said, reading your Bible, praying, all those things are good. The Bible tells us that these are important things to do, but if those things are the end that you're hoping and will change you and not the means to the end, meaning to get you to Jesus who will change you, then they will be things that will add to your despair or add to your arrogance, and you will never be changed. You will still be blind. So here's the issue. What we begin to see in the life of the disciples and what's really kind of going on here with the disciples is that Jesus comes to them and they ask them, who do men say that I am? And they say, Jesus, we believe that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And why this is so essential to the whole and so pivotal to the whole story of the Gospel of Mark and really to your life, to the story of your life, where you're at, is this answers everything. Because what Jesus does by asking this question, it creates this contrast, but really what it's doing at the same time is also it's exposing a very lethal problem that we all have. It's this addiction to self-reliance. In other words, the real problem that we have in our hearts, the real thing that keeps us spiritually blind is that we have this addiction. We have an addiction, all of us. We have an addiction problem. The addiction problem that we have is not necessarily drugs or alcohol or porn. Those might be things that you have that you're dealing with, but really the real addiction that we all have is a self-reliance addiction. We rely upon ourselves. We have confidence in ourselves. We place trust in ourselves. And at the end of the day, it's this idea that there's, we have this mentality that no one comes close to ruling my life, no one come, comes close to guiding my life better than myself. I know what's best for me. I know what's best in order to lead me, to guide me. I make the best decisions. Nobody else is looking out after my life, but I will look out after my life. I make the best decisions. And what Jesus is basically saying is that by asking the question, who do you say that I am, he's getting his disciples to confess that they're ill-equipped to master their, li- their own lives. But only Jesus is the only one who's equipped to master and govern your lives. This is the question you have to wrestle with. How you answer this question will demonstrate everything about your life. Because the real problem that we have is we have this addiction of self-reliance. We trust in ourselves to the point where it will blind us and it will crush us. We're not good gods. We don't govern ourselves well. We fail. But there's the problem. We don't like to be contradicted either. We don't like to be challenged. When someone comes to us, I mean, you guys know this, your own self. When someone comes to you and they rebuke you, someone tells you you're wrong, someone comes to you and says, why did you do that? You're an idiot. You get mad. You get angry. Why? What you're actually doing in getting angry is you're declaring war. Because what happened is someone declared an act against your sovereignty. That's king language. You're king, and someone attacked your kingdom. And now you're going to fight back. You will resist. The statement, Jesus, you are the Christ, is basically saying, I'm not king. You are. I can't rescue myself, but you can. How you answer that question is everything. It's not just simply trying to answer the right statement. It's not just simply trying to tell God what he wants to hear or try to say some sort of religious terminology. It's really at the end of the day, it's how is your heart lined up and how do you really truly see this Jesus that has come this is an absolutely essential and important question because this was what was going on. Um, why this is so important, especially with the life of the disciples, is the disciples had this idea in their mind about a Messiah. It's really important to know this. And this is one of the reasons why I would say this is kind of stages of God's work in their lives. Is that most first century Jews had a hope that one day God would bring a Messiah, a king. And this king, and the reason why they believed that this king would come is because the book of Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel, they all prophesied. They all made these like prophecies describing a day in which a king would come. He'd rule in the lineage of David, be like King David, 
and he'd rule and reign really well. And so they all had these expectations, but one of the things that most of these guys had these expectations about the Messiah is in their mind they thought, okay, the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to overthrow our biggest enemy, all right? For a first century Jew, who's your biggest enemy? You want to worship God, you want to love God, you want to worship God according to the own dictates of your own heart, but there is a restriction, there's an oppressor over you that's disallowing you to worship your God. So who's the big enemy to the Jews first century? Anybody? Rome, Caesar, right? So he's the big enemy to, to all the Jews. So in the Jews' mind, especially living first century, they think, okay, when the Messiah comes, he's going to overthrow all of Rome. We don't know how he's going to do it, but we know that's what he's going to do. So they have these expectations. So in their mind, when they see Jesus as the Messiah, that's what they think is going to happen. So in their mind, they're like, okay, look, Jesus, when are we going like, to do sword training? Like, when are we going to study like, ninja techniques? And when's all this going to happen? Jesus is like, you know what we're going to do today? We're going to go heal a blind dude. And by the way, he said, we're going to also go to a Gentile territory, and we're going to tell them about God's kindness. And they're like, are you kidding me? Like, that, whatever. All right, that's cool. Like, maybe we'll learn sword techniques on the way, right? Ninja tricks on the way. Like, maybe show us how to throw a throwing star or something. I don't know. Maybe on the way we'll learn some of these tricks because at some point we're going to, you know, clad ourselves in armor. We're going to take on the powers, the forces that be Rome. They also had an idea that when the Messiah come, he would also cleanse the temple, but also, too, he'd bring judgment or bring justice upon the whole earth. So in their mind, they have this, this notion, this idea that Messiah, which they claim Jesus is, they had these expectations. I just simply describe them as messianic expectations. That the Messiah, that Jesus would overthrow Rome, that he would set up a kingdom, and that they would rule and reign on his left and right hand side. We know that because this is what these guys are always arguing about. They're always having these little discussions. Hey, Jesus, by the way, when you get into your kingdom, when you set up rule and reign, set up shop, you know, we're like part of your little posse. Like, can we serve you on your right hand and your left hand side? And in fact, one of these guys, two of these guys actually had their mom track Jesus down, and the mom went to Jesus and like, Jesus, hey, by the way, like, my sons are faithful to you. Like, when you get in your kingdom, can you have my sons sit on your right hand and your left-hand side? Which is basically asking, hey, can they be your secretary of state and your vice president? Like, can, that's what they're asking. The moment you overthrow Rome, the moment you set up your kingdom, can this be the arrangements that are going to happen? Problem is, they didn't understand anything about Jesus' kingdom. Yes, Jesus had an enemy in mind that he was going to conquer. But it was bigger than Rome. It was demonic forces. Yes, Jesus was going to, yes, judgment was going to come. But judgment was not going to come the way they expected. Because judgment was, going to, was not going to come on the enemies. Judgment was going to come upon the king. He was going to be judged in the place of the enemies. And what Jesus is basically asking them, do you believe me to be who I am? To do what I've come to do, even if it doesn't line up with your expectations of what I should do. I think the real problem with the disciples was not a lack of trust in the power of Jesus. I think these guys would have been totally foolish to be like, we don't know how Jesus is going to heal people. Like, we don't, we've never seen any experiences of power. These guys were always around power. They saw Jesus speak to a hurricane, and their hurricane stopped. They saw Jesus cleanse people and heal their eyes. And so it wasn't a question of whether or not do we trust Jesus' power? Like, what do you guys think? Peter, do you think we trust Jesus' power? And they all trusted Jesus' power. It was not an issue of like, can God do it? What I think they had a hard time really trusting is Jesus' purpose. They never got that. They never really understood that. And in their minds, they were always kind of wondering, wait a minute, Jesus, are we supposed to be going here and doing this? I mean, when are we going to learn how to like train on swords? He's like, no, we're going to go heal people. Like, okay, whatever. Uh, you know, Jesus, shouldn't we like, you know, go do some sort of other tactics, training and all that so that we can prepare for the big battle? And Jesus is like, no, we're going to go feed 5,000 people. They don't get it. And Jesus is like, you know, by the way, we're also going to go to Gentile territory. We're going to go to places that all of you throughout your entire life has all, have always been taught to marginalize, to push out, to not have anything to do with them. We're going to go to people that are outcasts, people that you and your religion have always taught you to hate and despise. And in their mind, 
they're no doubt just full of like weariness. They're like, I'm not sure if that's what we're supposed to be doing. And even Peter, we'll like, take a look at this next week. But Peter, everything comes to this climax because in the very next verse, I'm going to get a little bit ahead of myself. Jesus is going to say, oh, by the way, there's one other thing I forgot to tell you that's all part of my messianic role. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And I'm going to be nailed to a cross. And I'm going to die. Peter flips out. He's like, are you kidding me? You can't do that. You're the Messiah. You're the king. Kings, Messiahs that die are failed Messiahs. You can't do that. He rebukes Jesus, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You have no idea what you're even talking about. You see, here's my point. The problem that the disciples were struggling with is the same problem that all of us struggle with. All of us. Because I guarantee that all of us, at some point in time in our life, we've always wrestled with God's purposes. God, why have you done this thing? Why have you allowed this circumstance to happen? God, how are you going to work this circumstance out? How is this going to take place? Why have you allowed me to hit rock bottom, not have any more money? Why have you allowed me to get kicked out of school? Why have you allowed my marriage to fizzle out and be destroyed? Why have you allowed my health to, to, to deteriorate? Why have you allowed myself to go bankrupt? Why have you allowed all of these things to transpire and all of these things to take place and all of these things to happen in my life? If you're sovereign, why? And here's what happens typically. We typically kind of get this sort of weird boldness where we're like, you know what, God, if you don't do something for me now, then I'm not going to follow you. You know what that is? That's a declaration of stupidity that basically amounts to saying, if you don't do things the way I expect you to do them, I'm going to walk away. We're not God. But the point that Mark is trying to take us along in the narrative and the story is that if Jesus is God, then it must mean that his purposes have to be, by nature, higher than ours. There must be bits of information that we don't know about. There must be some bigger storyline, some bigger narrative, some drama that's hidden from plain sight, or at least from your plain sight, that's going on behind the scenes that you just have no idea. That's all part of this tapestry that he's working together for your good. Must be. If he is God, is he big enough to do things that you don't understand? That's the question. It can all be summarized in this one simple statement, the question that Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? The way that you answer that will clearly, clearly begin to show you whether or not you are blind or whether or not that blindness is being beginning to be healed. How you answer that will demonstrate everything. The final thing I'm done with this is how is spiritual blindness healed? How is spiritual blindness healed? There's three different ways in which I think the text kind of identifies this and speaks of this. The first of which is... Uh, I think spiritual blindness is actually healed in community. We see this in the story of the first guy when uh, he has friends that bring him to Jesus. And they basically come to Jesus and they're like, look, our, our, our buddy is blind and we want you to heal him. Can you please do that? So what I love about the story is these guys recognize that they see Jesus. To them, Jesus is clear. They, they can see Jesus. But in their minds, they're like, our buddy can't see Jesus. We want to have him see. So we're going to bring him to Jesus. So Jesus heals him. The beauty of this is that Jesus actually, once he heals us, once he restores us, he puts us into community whereby we begin to grow. We begin to see things. We begin to work through the process of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Look, let me put it this way. If the way that we're saved is by being brought into right relationship with a Trinitarian God who is, by definition, community, then this Trinitarian nature of God also brings us into another level of community, which the Bible describes as a church. And it's in the church, in this community of people that are broken. In fact, they all have varying degrees of ability to see just like all of us. Problem is, is one of the reasons why sometimes, maybe if you've ever been involved in the church for any period of time, you find out very quickly that they're not perfect people. They sin a lot. They do a lot of weird things. They are hypocrites. They do a lot of just stuff that can be annoying sometimes. And the reason why is because they're blind, just like you just like you. But Jesus brings us into this community whereby we begin to grow. 
And what happens is our spiritual blindness begins to dissipate, begins to be healed. We begin to see things a little bit clearer as time goes on. That being in community, being in biblical community, is part of the healing process that Jesus puts us in in order to rehab us, to cleanse us, to purify us, to heal us, to heal our spiritual blindness. So first of all, we see spiritual community is one of the ways in which Jesus begins to heal us. Secondly, we see uh, spiritual blindness is healed gradually. We see this take place in the life of this guy that was healed, but we also see this take place in the disciples. This is one of the reasons why I like this idea that there's some form of a parallel that's going on here and why I think Mark puts this here is that gradually things begin to take, take shape. Things begin to take place. It doesn't just simply happen at once. One of the problems I think oftentimes we do is we tend to look at the Bible and we take one particular conversion story and we use that as sort of the template for everybody else. You know what conversion story I'm talking about? The life of Paul. We have this idea, like, here's Paul. He's walking on the road to Emmaus. He sees this shining bright light come down from heaven, gets knocked off of his horse, and immediately, instantaneously, Paul is changed. So we tend to look at Paul's life, or maybe one of the problems, sometimes, if you've ever been to church, and there's somebody giving their testimony, a lot of times the testimony is like this big, gnarly person that has, like, gone through horrible things in her life, and and all of a sudden, in a moment, in an instantaneous moment, they saw the light, and they were changed instantaneously. They went from being a meth addict, you know, crank addict, to just somehow following Jesus, teaching Bible studies instantaneously overnight. We're like, some of us look at that and think, gosh, like, I was brought up in the church, and my parents were Christians, and grandma was a Christian, and great-grandpa was a pastor, and like, like, I never got into drugs. I never did anything messed up or bad. And I just sort of gradually, maybe I'm not saved. And you start beating yourself up thinking, maybe I'm not saved. And we use the paradigm of Paul the Apostle in this instantaneous conversion experience as the template for everybody else. And that if you don't fill that template, then maybe you begin to question whether or not you're even really saved. But there's other templates in the Bible as well that throw out. Like, for example, Peter. Peter was with Jesus for a long time, and he was very slow of heart, slow to believe. He saw Jesus day in and day out. He ventured with Jesus on these 90-mile hikes, and they talked a lot, but Peter was still spiritually blind, but he was growing. Look, let me put it this way. If you're in a place in your life, and you begin to kind of question, you wonder, like, man, nothing gnarly or radical happened in my life like that. I didn't hear God speak audibly. I'm not even sure if I'm a Christian but, I, but I, I wish, I wish I was further along than I was. If that's you, the very desire that you have to want to be further along with Jesus than you are is an indication of God at work in your heart. You didn't put that desire there. You didn't create that desire. That's a gift from God. Rejoice in the fact. You're, you belong to him. He loves you. He's done a work in your heart. The light is on. There's transformation beginning to take place and happen. You belong to Jesus. Celebrate that. Rejoice in that. Let that change you because he loves you. Final thing I'm done is that we also see that spiritual blindness is healed through faith and repentance. And here's what I mean. At the end of the day, what Mark is doing over and over and over again, he wants us to ask the question, who is Jesus? Because he wants us to come back to the answer that Jesus is the Messiah he is the king, the rightful king, the only true rightful king that is worthy to govern. So in order for us to be in right relationship with anybody, we have to be able to give them our heart. Do you know that? Some of you maybe are a little bit unaware of that. And at some point, some of you are going to be involved in a relationship. Some of you, I know, realize most of the people in the evening service are not married. You might even be single. At some point, you begin to realize if you're ever going to be in a relationship, you actually have to begin to give your heart away to somebody, meaning you have to begin to reveal secrets of who you are and vice versa. That person will then begin to reveal secrets of who they are, not deep, dirty secrets. That might be part of it, but the reality is you begin to see who that person is based upon how much they reveal to you of them, but then... It's also reciprocated. But if you're in a relationship and you're like, I'm going to show them myself, but they say, no, I'm not going to show you anything because I'm afraid, that relationship comes to a standstill. And if it's true, the way that we're saved is through a relationship with Jesus. And we have to trust him. We have to trust him with the most guarded and protected thing of our life, which is our heart. But we don't like this. Because the moment we give our heart away to somebody, we feel vulnerable. 
we feel open, and we feel as if somebody can take advantage of us and hurt us. And so we hold it. We protect it. We put walls around it. But if Christianity is about a relationship with a God, then we have to be willing to trust Him. And part of that trust means we have to find Him trustworthy. And here's the question. How can we trust that Jesus is capable and able and powerful enough and has good purposes in mind to heal us, to cleanse us, to push back the spiritual darkness, the spiritual blindness, to bring us into light? How can we trust Him to do that? And what Mark's going to tell us is by the end of the Gospel account, we're going to see Jesus go all the way to Jerusalem as part of His plan. And in Jerusalem, He'll be beaten and bruised, hung on a cross. And then while He's on the cross, Mark records something for us. That in the middle of the day, everything was plunged into utter darkness. Everything. Jesus was in darkness. And this was God's way of saying, That Jesus is not only in a physical, tangible darkness, but the darkness that Jesus is is going into, plunging himself into, is the deep spiritual darkness. What Jesus is doing on the cross is allowing the darkness that you and I feel, the darkness that you and I perhaps have experienced, that darkness, what it does to us, Jesus is allowing that darkness to do all that darkness does to us. It disintegrates us. It dehumanizes us. It breaks us down. It tears us apart into shreds, bit by bit, piece by piece, limb by limb. On the cross, Jesus plunged himself into the darkness because that's where you and I are at to rescue you so that by you trusting him, he'll bring you into the light where there's freedom, there's life, there's joy. Can Jesus be trusted? Let me ask you this. Who else would be willing to do something like that for you? My boyfriend? Really? Your dad? I mean, the love of all human beings is limited. There's limitations on everything. And maybe for a dad, I mean, I've got two daughters. I'm willing to do anything for them. I'll die for them. I really will. I'm not just saying I would totally die for my kids. But once I'm dead, I'm powerless. I can't do anything anymore. I'm, I'm gone. So kill me, and now you get to my daughters. I'm powerless. There's limits to what I'm able to do, but not with God. Can you trust him? You have to answer that question for yourself. All I can do is try to present to you a picture of our God who's trustworthy by way of what he's done for you and how much he loves you to pull you out of this darkness, to bring you into his light, to bring you into his joy, to bring you into his life. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Have these guys come on up and they'll lead us in some worship. We'll partake of communion. We have communion in the back. We'll just sing. My encouragement to you is as we sing, I just want you to sense and know the depth of the love of God that's here in this place for us to meet with him, to love him, to trust him. For some of us, that might mean to confess our sins to him. For some of us, that might mean to confess our self-reliance to just simply say jesus i trust too much in myself i want to trust you i want to find you trustworthy because i'm destroying my life and i want you to put my life back together again he's a god that you can trust with your life he's a god that you can trust with your heart so i'm going to pray we'll sing we'll worship meet with jesus god we just thank you for great love great grace the good news that our king knows how to touch us in a way that brings healing. That's who you are. So we want to humble ourselves before you right now and just say thank you. We want to humble ourselves right now before you and just worship you, cast our cares upon you because you care for us, give our lives to you because you truly love us. We confess our love by song.